listening to thousands, literally thousands of songs about heartbreak, rejection, pain, misery, and loss. Did I listen to pop music because I was miserable? Or was I miserable because I listened to pop music? Well, music is my life, man. What do you want me to do? Welcome to another episode of Love That Album, the podcast where uh, myself and a uh, guest who I've got on for that week will be uh, harping on about an album that means a lot to us. This, well, technically is episode number three, although it's sort of more like episode two. For those of you who might have been following the blog, might have sort of worked out that episode two, I had some, uh, shall we say, technical problems and I ended up rubbing off the uh, crucial part of the episode, which was uh, myself and my good friend Jeff Smith talking about uh, John Hyatt's fantastic album, Meet the Family. So I just put up online what I had, but none of it was talking about the album. So uh, I might have to uh, come back to that album somewhere along the line, but uh, never mind. Today is episode three, and with me I have uh, my good friend and Melbourne music journalist, Mr. Jeff Jenkins. G'day, Mo. Thanks for having us back Thanks. after our Bruce Springsteen battle. Yes, had some good feedback about that. Uh, some other uh, Bruce fans out there and felt that we actually had something to contribute to uh, the uh, milieu, shall we say, of, yep. uh, of uh, Bruce Springsteen. Well, we'll see how we go today. Mm. So uh, today, for those of you uh, who've, uh, who are listening to this, and <laughs> what am I saying that for? Of course you're listening to this. Uh, for those of you out there uh, who are interested, we're doing... Uh, the main focus of today's episode will be uh, talking about the great album Get the Knack. Yes, you heard me say great album and Get the Knack in the same sentence. Um, and unfortunately, uh, both Jeff and I believe that this album has received something of a bum rap uh, over the last 30 years. Um, so we'll talk about that a little bit later on in the show in some depth. But uh, before we do that, a uh, nice way to start off the show would be um, let's talk about music that we've been listening to of late. Jeff, what's uh, been on your turntable, CD player, MP3 player, any form of music reproduction? Well, Mo, I'm a little bit hungover today. I had a big night seeing a Melbourne band last night, Skipping Girl Vinegar. Ah, oh, right. And I love this band. I think this could be my album of the year. It's their second album. It's called Keep Calm, Carry the Monkey, mm. which I think is a great title for an album. What I love about this band, apart from the songs, is their attention to detail and their live performance is just remarkable. But with the albums, they're old school. It's all about the artwork. It's all about the look and the feel of the album. Uh, a lot of this album was paid for by their fans. They call they have these hobo fans who donated money uh, to the band to make the record. It's sort of like the old school cottage industry. There's a few bands who are sort of pursuing that line nowadays, I think. Yeah, very much mm. so. But I don't think very few of them do it as well as Skipping Girl Vinegar do it. You really feel that you're a part of it. It, mm. it is a Skipping Girl Vinegar community. Love the songs. Uh, this record, a real treat uh, on the album. Ron Sexsmith uh, pops up singing oh, wow. on, on the closing track on the album. It's, it's kind of a, a lot deeper and darker than their debut record uh, but certainly yeah one I really recommend to people to uh, seek out Melbourne band Skipping Girl Vinegar mm-hmm. anything else what else has been on your 
Ah, uh, certainly uh, the Foves. I love the Foves. I've just done a review of their new album, Japanese Engines. Now, I think it's their 10th album. And I, I call them the Dustin Fletcher of uh, Australian music. And for people probably going, who the hell is Dustin Fletcher? I'm a huge Essendon supporter in the AFL. He's, he's, I think he's 36, nearly 37. He's just played and played and played still consistently brilliant some of his contemporaries well most of them they're all retired (laughs) um but his his contemporaries were more glamorous and got a lot more attention than dustin fletcher got but he always gets a job done and i think that's true with the fives too they are consistently brilliant Uh, been around i think 23 years now have have a real wry take on the world and the music industry uh, two great singers and uh, songwriters, Andrew Cox and, and the guitarist Phil the Doctor Leonard, in fine form on this record. I don't think it's quite as good as their last record, but it's still very, very good. And it's sort of, there's two albums, uh, Japanese Engines and German Engines. German Engines will follow early 2012, uh, but there's yeah, a very, very clever band. Mm. Now, while we're talking about local bands, I wanted to ask you about, I haven't heard the album and i'm embarrassed to say uh but i noticed that there's been a classic album been released of the band the huxton creepers now growing up i remember always hearing about the huxton creepers but why they particularly caught my attention just now with this re-release of uh, this old album of theirs is because i saw in the lineup of the band was a musician I knew very well from another life, Mr. Paul Thomas. He of weddings. weddings parties, anything, yes, which indeed. also recently had a reunion for uh, their annual grand final eve. Yeah, concert. I'm really excited about this Huxton Creepers re-release. It's their debut album, uh, Twelve Days to Paris, uh, which was co-produced by Steve Berlin from of Los Lobos. Yes, he was in Australia at the time, and they got him to, to work on the record. It was one of those records, obviously an 80s record, a lot of 80s records, particularly in Australia, uh, unless you had a mega, mega budget, they didn't sound that great. They Mm. just sounded a little bit flat. um, And also they they haven't dated that well. Uh, So that was sort of always my feeling with the Huxton Creepers, an incredible live band. The singer Rob Craw should have been a superstar, just a remarkable front man. The entire band, all great. Um, but it's one of those things that, you know, you talk to young people now and you tell them about a band and go, oh, the Huxton Creepers, but you always felt, not embarrassed, but putting on the record never did the band justice. Mm. The great thing about this re-release is that it is remastered, which you know, they, they, they remastered just about every re-release. Some of them work, some of them don't work, some you can't even sound, hear the difference. With this Huxton Creepers record, you really can hear the difference. Okay. It's just given an extra oomph a bit more muscle there and and the songs have always been great so really really excited about that so if you want to check out a fine australian band from the 80s should have been much bigger than what they were check out the huxton creepers and this re-release now i'm going to come back to once again to another uh local act which i believe received the uh remastering treatment in the last 12 months i think and and the word got about that uh, it was a vast improvement over the sound quality i think it was uh mark gillespie Oh yes, yes. Has, his, I think and his debut and, and the second which, one as well. Yeah, it's also it's come out as well. Yeah, Aztec Music, mm. a fine Melbourne label, uh, run by Gil Matthews, who was the drummer in Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. Mm. Probably the the smartest drummer, if not in world music, then in Australian music, because he's he's he 
I think it, Wally DeBacker's not too far behind. Well, that's true, that's true. But yeah, Gil Matthews, very, very clever businessman, but a music lover. And the Aztec music re-releases, can recommend all of them. Even if, you know, the music you might not love, the way it's put together, usually liner notes from Ian McFarlane, who wrote the Australian Rock and Roll Encyclopedia. They are just fantastic re-releases, including the Mark Gillespie ones. Mm. Great yep. stuff. Earlier on this year from Aztec Music, I um, bought, I think we discussed this uh, in over email a few months back, was a Broderick Smith's Big Combo yes. album. And uh, it was a funny thing, I brought the CD home, was playing it, and uh, my wife Joanne said to me, oh, is this a Bruce Springsteen album? And then I thought about that, you know, it, it really is Stuff like Faded Roses. Yes, yes. Um, there, there was definitely something to it, uh, to that comment. So... Um, that's that's your uh, list of uh, albums for this week. Yes, yes, right. certainly. Probably album of the year, Skipping Girl Vinegar. Big Look call. out for the Foves. Great re-release from the Huxton Creepers. First time on CD, mm. and which is very very special. Okay. Um, all right. Well, I'll I'll go through a few albums that I've been listening to of late. Um, now, the new album for Wilco uh, just came out. I think maybe about two weeks ago or something like that. Uh, it's called The Whole Love. Uh, now, Wilco is. Uh, a band which I feel, uh, I guess, a, a lot of a lot of punters out there are getting, I don't know, maybe a bit revisionist about. Um, and it seems to be the cool thing to say that uh, you know, people are more into the experimental side of Wilco rather than the straight out ahead pop sounds. Or heaven forbid that you should admit that you like AM, their country album. But um, I think I I, I got into uh, uh, Wilco. Um, maybe just after AM came out, I think it might have been Dave O'Neill while he was hosting the Triple R Breakfast show. It was a big rap for him, so I followed up on the, their second album and have basically been following them ever since. And they've produced some fantastic releases. And, and yes, I like the experimental stuff. Uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot, um, certainly probably you know, the, the best album of, of that year. And yet uh, the al- a couple of albums back that they put out called Sky Blue Sky, I just absolutely adored. It was a very 70s, very uh, summery guitar sounding album uh, and really heavy on melody. But I think a lot of people just sort of found it to be too much what they call um, <clears throat> uh, easy listening. And I take objection to that. I think it was just a, a very strong pop album. So, th- so this new record, where do you think? Well, okay, well, so this is it. The, the new album, you, you put it on and uh, track one is called, uh, called The Art of Almost. You put it on and you think, right, if this is indicative of the rest of the album, we have an experimental album. It sounded, imagine the first time, if you're a Wilco fan out there, imagine the first time listening to uh, Yankee Hotel Foxtrot and putting on uh, the opening track, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart. Well, sort of like that, or maybe even more experimental than that, maybe closer to uh, anything off A Ghost Is Born. Uh, It was, um, yeah, it, it certainly wasn't straight ahead pop. Uh, but after a couple of listens, I really got into it, and I thought, okay, that's a great tune. And then you're going further on, but as you sort of go further down the album, it really, I think, has more in common with the early stuff, Summer Teeth. Um, yeah, I'd say Summer Teeth, which was album number three, uh, very heavily poppy, uh, and maybe even uh, the last track on this album, uh, Song for Jane Smiley's Boyfriend, I think, uh, Sunday morning. It sounds like it could have actually fitted in on um, on uh, the Billy Bragg Wilco Mermaid Avenue sessions. Uh, very folky. 
So in a way, I'd say this album is sort of like a history of Wilco. You know, for those of you who like the experimental stuff, we've got a couple of tracks there for you. Those of you who like the poppy stuff, uh, there's a, um, a song on it called Sunload, which is very Beatlesque. Um, and there's uh, one song in it called, oh, I've forgotten the name of it. I should, I should have the album with me. I should have something to refer to. Where are my notes? Uh, Lonesome, I think. Lonely, Lonesome. Anyway, feel free to write into me and uh, let me know. Although I've probably looked at the album cover before this goes to air anyway. Um, but there's a, and, and um, in the cover notes, it says that there are samples on that track from uh, the Stooges tune TVI. Uh, I can't hear it myself, but certainly the end of the song uh, doesn't end in a way that the beginning of the song makes you think it will, and it does have a very Stooges-like ending. So uh, they're really um, they're going all over the shop here, and but I mean that is a good thing. Uh, so yeah, Tweedy and Co. They've finally found a stable lineup uh, after um, uh, much of the internal dissension. Uh, between uh, Tweedy and Jay Bennett, for any of you who've watched the Wilco documentary film, uh, I'm Trying to Break Your Heart, would have known that there was a, a lot of tension between uh, the two more creative gentlemen of uh, the group. Um, and I don't know, I guess that turned me off uh, Wilco as a group of personalities for a while, because certainly once Jay Bennett was kicked out of the group, uh, the knives came out from the hitherto silent uh, majority of the group. Um, but musically they're definitely a band to be reckoned with and uh certainly um one of the finer bands in america so um but yeah check this one out um actually yeah i'm just looking at my notes over here yeah so that last song that i mentioned um uh, one sunday morning uh song for jane smiley's boyfriend if i guess something to compare it to might be like side two of neil young's on the beach record so if you think you like that sort of acoustic-y uh, style of Neil Young then um, that's that's a 12 minute song but not a minute is wasted really it's quite a quite a great track and a fantastic album so I've harped on long enough about that um, I think another album I wanted to uh, quickly mention um, is uh, by Chris Difford the uh, he of um, the uh, songwriting team uh, Difford and Tilbrook of uh, the great band Squeeze now did you ever see uh, Glenn Tilbrook when he came out to Melbourne. Yes, I have seen him once. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible talent. I haven't heard this new record though from Chris. So tell it's, us about it. Is well, it it's like a, Squeeze? Uh, a couple of tracks. Yes, I get. Look, the thing is, uh, during the during the years of Squeeze, it was often said that Tilbrook was the musical one and Difford was the lyricist. And in the absence of being with the other one, they've both had to acquire skills that the other one had uh, although having said I think on this which might be album number three or four for Chris Difford uh, I think this time he's uh, found someone to write the music and he's stuck with the lyrics although in previous albums he has done uh, music composition uh, lyrically it's it's interesting he, he's getting uh, I don't maybe nostalgic isn't the word but there's a lot of looking back on this album there's a lot of history um, he's writing songs about uh, being a father, so, but it's not dad rock. He's um, writing songs about his own youth. Um, I, it's what I call melancholy pop. Um, and it, there's a, a, the opener of the album is a song called 1975. Uh, and it, on the one hand, it might sound on the surface like it's being nostalgic, but uh, this song, which sets the mood for a lot of the album, is like saying, yes, I remember when it was like back then, but 
it wasn't always for the better. And actually, I'm quite happy with my life right now. Um, so it's not just, you know, gee, life sucks now. And wasn't it so much better back then? He acknowledges there were good things, but you know what? Guess what? I'm moving on with it. But he spends the whole album doing that. But if he were a lesser songwriter, it might just be self-indulgent pap. But he's, he's fantastic. I mean, it wasn't for no reason that Tilbrook, Devin Tilbrook were the, you know, described as the Lennon-McCartney of their day. Maybe it's overstating it a bit, but it gives you the point that they were, and still are, two extremely very talented songwriters. So uh, what's this album called? Uh, this is called uh, Cashmere, if you can. A very bad pun, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, never mind. Um, uh, another couple of highlights from the album. There's a song called uh, Like I Did, uh, where he's looking at his kids' activities uh, and he's sort of thinking, oh, you know, geez, I can't really have a go at them for doing that because, you know, he's playing the bass like I did and he's smoking pot like I did and, you know, she's getting, getting around like I did uh, and all these sorts of things. I really want to stop them doing that, but, you know, shit, I made the same mistake, so I've got to let them make those same mistakes. Uh, you know, another song, Back in the Day, um, where he's talking about you know, a different life that he had. And all these songs apparently are biographical, most of them are biographical. Um, uh, he's talking about you know, his youth where he's hung out in gangs and uh, he, you know, the shame he feels. You know, he got into fights and did all sorts of things and took drugs and stuff that he, he claims nowadays he's not happy about, not proud of, but he's getting on with life. And really, this is, as I said, the theme for the album. Uh, it pays one song, uh, one, pays tribute to his father in one song called Sydney Street. Um, talking about his father coming back from World War II, uh, how he'd had a hard time of it, and of course, you know, uh, times were not easy in uh, in London or anywhere in Europe after the war. But somehow he managed to, you know, build a life and find a job and build up a family. And it all does sound very dad rock when I when I describe <laughs> it. But uh, being a dad and being of that vintage, I guess I I, I I think he's just an incredibly intelligent lyricist. And I look forward to the day where maybe he does a Stephen Cummings and turns his hands toward uh, turns his hand towards uh, novel writing. I think he'd I think he'd do a really good job. The the lyrics on this album are, are uh, just exquisite. Um, well, I've been listening to a lot, but I think I'll call it there for the moment. Uh, talking about albums that we've been listening to, but I do want to mention a couple of other things. Um, recently, uh, I, I guess I have been turning back to the music over the last couple of weeks of uh, a guitarist who I absolutely loved since I was maybe about, I don't know, nine or ten, uh, a man called Bert Yanch, who uh, unfortunately passed away, uh, I think, what's the date today? Oh, yeah, maybe about ten days ago or so. Uh, Bert Yanch was a, um, the uh, guitar player, one of two guitar players for a great folk British folk pop group from uh, England called uh, Pentangle. But, of course, he'd had a uh, guitar-playing career before that and had one long after Pentangle ceased to exist. And it, actually, about a month and a half ago, Pentangle had a, uh, a reunion gig in uh, London's Albert Hall, I think. Uh, so it might have been his last uh, public appearance. Uh, but, uh, unfortunately, Bert Yanch uh, died of uh, cancer-related difficulties. It's getting to be, uh, unfortunately, hearing more stories like that, Jeff. Yes, yeah, very, very sad news. Um, but uh, yeah, originally he was, he was from Glasgow uh, Pentangle were not a band I mean I guess they get lumped in the folk scene of, of London as I've just done but very different kettle of fish to um, 
uh, a group like Fairport Convention, which had uh, the wonderful Sandy Denny and Richard Thompson. Uh, Pentangle uh, was a, a folk band that had um, jazz musicians and blues musicians in it. So they put their spin on, um, on uh, the folk idiom. Uh, I urge you to uh, go out and search out um, an album uh, by Bert Yanch from 7374, if you can, called L.A. Turnaround. It's got a song in it called Fresh as a Sweet Sunday Morning, and it's just one of the most beautiful melodies I think I've ever heard. Absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it, opening The album's opening track, and I probably play it about 10 times before I get to the rest of the album. And if you want to search out a Pentangle album, uh, go for Basket of Light. Um, I mean, yeah, it's hard for words merely to describe something, but look them up. There'll, there'll be some footage on YouTube. Uh, search out either of those albums, or there's a box set of Pentangle um, and uh, a couple of good anthologies of Bert Yanch as well. Uh, and the other thing I want to mention um, is a great book I recently read. Um, I found it about this through a podcast uh, that's related to the uh, uh, English magazine The Word. Now, they have a fantastic podcast. And they recently interviewed um, uh, uh, biographical author Peter Doggett. Uh, he went and wrote this book called You Never Give Me Your Money. And it's a, it, it's another Beatles book, and Lord knows we've read probably lots of those. But the angle that this takes place, it actually starts fairly late in the Beatles' career, about the time where the Apple company was starting out, not the Steve Jobs Apple company, the Beatles Apple company, kids. There was an Apple before Which Steve Jobs. Which didn't do quite as well as no, the Steve Jobs company. No, no, well, it was... Uh, and this book sort of goes into some detail just as to why it didn't do so well. Apple started out originally as uh, Paul McCartney and John Lennon's project to make sure that authors, filmmakers, musicians wouldn't have to, in their words, go down on bended knees to someone's office, probably yours, uh, to uh, get a project finance and all sorts of parasites uh, would come to their office and just take their money and they ended up uh, in all sorts of strife, all sorts of financial problems and uh, they were lost without the management skills or at least management enthusiasm of Brian Epstein. Uh, so they had all sorts of people come on board and then the Beatles started hating each other and all sorts of legal fracas. So this book sort of covers that legal fracas and really goes up to modern day. Um, so yeah the Apple Saga the Beatles Apple Saga is a long and very sad story sort of takes the sheen if you had this sort of superficial idea that well you know it was sad in the end that they split up but basically they were a group of guys who got along well um, and certainly in the beginning they did but uh, this book just tells a lot about where it all went wrong so I'd recommend uh, that if you're a Beatles fan and certainly want to see some, it's, it's not a seedy book but it just sort of goes all that and tells well, this is how it was and this is what happened. And uh, for any of you, I, I guess it was a, an industry after John Lennon died of painting him as a saint in this book without getting into the nasty Albert Goldman style of uh, writing. But it does sort of paint a very different picture, which I've also get picked up from other Beatles books. But um, And does it mention a band called Grapefruit, who were one of the first bands to sign to Apple? No, it doesn't, no. And uh, because I, I mentioned that because uh, the Young Brothers, of course, um, Vander and Young, the Easy Beats, and then, of course, ACDC, Malcolm and Angus, their older brother, Alex, who didn't actually come to Australia with the rest of them, he decided to stay in the UK. Right. He was in a band called Grapefruit, wow. one of the first bands to sign to Apple. Yes. So Apple signed Grapefruit. Unfortunately, they were a lemon. <laughs> oh, 
But uh, yeah, I didn't know he was going to say that. Folks. Interesting footnote in uh, the ACDC Easy Beats Young Brothers Who'd have story. It was a Beatles connection between ACDC mm. and the Beatles. But there you have it. All right. Well. Um, Okay, enough of that. Uh, we, I guess we should be getting to the point of this week's show, which will be about the neck, and we'll get on with that um, after the break. We'll be back in a minute. When you're watching movies, are you sick of remakes, reboots, reimaginings, reinventions, and Reese Witherspoon? Are you fed up with movies where giant robots try to remake Enter the Dragon? Do you think that torture porn is vastly inferior to 1970s drive-in porn? Do you find Botox actresses with fake tits and action heroes with no chest hair a turn-off? Do movies where no single shot lasts more than two and a half seconds piss you off? Yeah, me too. That's why I do Paleo Cinema Podcast, a podcast for films more than 20 years old. So if you think that Sid Charisse is a guy and that Myrna Loy is a kind of metal you need Paleo Cinema Podcast. Go to paleo-cinema.com and do yourself a favour. And we're back. Jeff over there, Morris over here. And um, yeah, we're going to be talking about uh, the great album from 1979 uh, featuring the musicians Doug Figer, Bert Nevere, Bruce Gary, and Prescott Niles, aka The Knack, and their debut album in particular called Get The Knack. Before we start talking about the album exactly, let's talk a little bit about the history. You want to lead off, Jeff? Do you have anything to well, say? Well, personally, I, I'm just so excited to be talking about this record because it is the first album I ever bought. And I know some people can often be embarrassed about the first albums that they bought. I am not. I am so proud that my first album was Get The Knack. Mm. And as you said uh, before, it is an underrated record. You know, it's been referred to as a guilty pleasure. I'm not guilty to admit, admit no. that this album has given me so much pleasure over the years. And I think you're in, we're in furious agreement Absolutely. over this. Absolutely. Great title for an album. Great name for a band, The Knack. And then to have a debut album, Get The Knack. Just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Um, an Aussie connection to this album, of course, the producer, Mike Chapman. Mike Chapman. Born in Queensland, started his music career in Australia, then relocated to the UK. Had incredible success with The Sweet and Susie Quattro in particular. And Blondie. And then Blondie, mm. which kind of led into the Knack and then had more success with Blondie after doing uh, the first two Knack albums. And the remarkable thing, and I think Mike Chapman really deserves credit for this record, and it's sort of a funny story, because his approach was just get it down on tape. Story goes, recorded in 11 days, cost only $17,000 to make, pretty much recorded live in the studio, one or two takes for every song. And uh, Doug Figer has said that, um, you know, his approach was just tapes rolling and then great take. And that he even sort of would say to him, Doug, I'm stealing your money because it was all so easy. That's been very flippant about it. There's incredible skill and genius in a record producer taking a band like The Knack and just going, these songs are great, you're a great band, let's just get it down. Other producers would have overproduced, they would have enforced themselves on this record and stuffed it up. Mike Chapman didn't do it. And there's incredible skill too. This is a great sounding record. Sure, it might sound live, but that's a beautiful thing about it. 
and you don't just get great drum sounds like this by accident. No. There is genius in Mike Chapman. Mm. Uh, do you know, actor, was Mike Chapman the band's choice or was he assigned to them by a capital? No, it was, it was kind of a funny story, I think, in that uh, the band... The band had been trying to get a record deal for a long time mm. and unsuccessful, but then finally got the record deal and then suddenly they were a real buzz band. And there was a story in maybe Billboard or in one of the papers in LA and they were talking about the producers they'd like to work with and they had kind of a list, a wish list. Mike Chapman wasn't on the list. He was in LA at the time and he kind of took offence to this and he was like, (laughs) why aren't I on that list? So he contacted the label and said, why aren't I on that list? I should be on that list. I want to do this record. I don't know if he'd heard much or seen much of them, but he, he knew they were a buzz band and he thought, I want to work with them. And they... He got the gig. And as I said, the beautiful thing about it, he didn't stuff it up. He just brought out the best in them as a great band. An interesting story. I was um, watching the other night a documentary, which I think I might have sent you a copy of, called Getting the Knack. Uh, It was um, basically the the story of the band from inception through to uh, the uh, unfortunate demise. Well, not quite to the demise, because, you know, well, uh, Bruce... Oh, no, Bruce Gary... I'm not sure. Yeah, Bruce Gary might have already died after this got yeah, released. I think he sadly died yeah. in 2006. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, the, sto- the story goes... Like I said, before the knack, Doug had been playing in a band called Sky. No, not the John Williams, Kevin Peake, Tristan Fry Sky, but a, uh, a band from Detroit, which I actually listened to, didn't think that much of. It was, I guess, typical 70s cock rock, maybe, but... Um, uh, but anyway, the, one of the songs that Sky he'd written for Sky, or actually maybe it was a band after Sky, I'm not quite sure, but one of the songs he'd written in, an, in Another Life was a little thing called Good Girls Don't. And they had it in their live set, and Mike Chapman said, look, I want this on the album. And Doug said, look, no, um, no, look, we've been, we shopped this around years ago on a demo. Yeah, they we were on the demo, so they got rejected no, by no, all the labels. Don't want it. Capital rejected them four times <laughs> before actually taking them up. Um, but uh, he said, and Chapman very wisely said, listen, Doug, record it once. If there's any problems with it, I won't ask you to do it again. And they played it, of course, perfect the first take. Mike Chapman, clever man, knew what he was doing. Yeah, remarkable history, that song, because it, it, it was a true story. Mm. And it went back to 1966. And a girl from uh, Doug's school, and he ended up at her house, and it was a true storyline. I just sort of assumed it was all about Sharona. The whole album I thought was about Sharona. No, I think there were a few different girls mm. in, in there. And he ended up writing the song in 1972, so six years later. And then it was another six years before you know, pretty much recording it. And as you said, they were over it by that point. And he was just like, oh, I'm sick of this song. <laughs> uh, but yeah, another part of Mike Chapman's genius, he was like, let's do it. And uh, what a, you know, a great line. Good girls don't, but I do. And I remember in the uh, documentary, Sherry Curry from The Runaways uh, passes on her comment. She says, by the way, Doug, good girls do. and of course that was a really controversial song on the record well I remember listening all those years ago I think it was a local radio station here in Melbourne uh, at the time 3DB used to play uh, used to syndicate uh, Casey Kasem's American Top 40 so I'd be listening every Sunday night and when that song got to I don't remember if it was number one but it was certainly pretty high up it was pretty high up and I think they'd gone and changed the lyric from uh, 
um, yeah, wish, uh, wishing you, you could get, get inside, inside her pants to wishing she was giving you a chance, you know. Yeah. Hang on, that's not the line. What are they, what are they doing? But, but of course, in a Casey Case and Oh, yeah. So it really, in a way, that's the version to get. That's, uh, that, that'd be a bit of a rarity out there, I imagine. If you can find a copy of that 45 RPM, that's, uh, that's the one you want to get. That's pretty hard to, uh, to obtain. Because the thing about the knack, which is an annoying thing, particularly in Australia, they're viewed as one-hit wonders. Because yeah, technically they did only have one hit single, My didn't, Sharona. Did Good Girls, Girls Don't Chart here? Didn't hit the top 40 really? in Australia. They no. did, of course, have three top 40 hits in the US. But in Australia, one-hit wonders. Even on Burt Newton's 20 to 1 TV show a few years ago, My Sharona, The Knack, that was the number one one-hit wonders of all time. Which, you know, it was great that they did have one hit. But I think, particularly in Australia, uh, people are too easy to dismiss the knack as one-hit wonders. Because um, there was certainly much more to them than just that one song. Let's talk a little bit about the musicians themselves. Um, the band actually started, you know, Doug Feiger from all reports, you know, had, was a very hungry sort of musician. And he was looking to find like players. And the first person he met was Bruce Gary, who was at the time a really well-respected LA session drummer. And Bruce could actually hear something in Doug's songs. He admired the material um, through him. And then uh, Doug met up with uh, Bert Navere, the guitar player. I'll get back to it in a minute. And then through Bruce met up uh, uh, he brought from one of his old bands uh prescott niles to play bass in the band now the the thing uh, unfortunately because once again because the uh, get the knack is sort of scoffed at so much so no discussion has been made that the songs are often dismissed so never mind we can't even get onto a discussion of the musicianship itself but i would argue that bruce gary is certainly one of the finest drummers uh, to have, have appeared on a pop song in God knows how many years. And I was listening to another great podcast out there called Rock and Roll Geek. And uh, the fellow there, I think he just basically, you know, uh, he worshipped the ground that uh, the knack walked on. And he did a two-hour interview with uh, Bert Nevere, the guitar player, and real, I think, uh, you know, the, the host of... Rock and Roll Geek was basically saying Bert Nevere is probably the finest guitar player he'd ever heard. So, you know, folks out there who might be listening to this, you might be scoffing, but you go back and you listen to, uh, if you're all you're going to find is my Sharona, go back and listen to that guitar solo. It's melodic. Um, it's well thought out. It's carved out. We'll get, we should probably get more to that when we get to the songs themselves, but uh, any comments on the musicianship? Uh, incredible. Particularly, you're a drummer, mm. so I, I guess you would notice drummers more than maybe I would. But listening to The Knack, like the drums just constantly excite me in listening to it. Uh, I, I put Bruce Gary right up there and another guy and another band that um, people would scoff at, but an Australian band, Kings of the Sun. Mm. Incredible cock rock band. An amazing drummer, Clifford Hode. I, I, I put Bruce Gary and Clifford Hode together in that I notice them and I just love It's such a thrilling uh, listening experience hearing these guys play the drums. They're fun, they're flashy. It's just incredible. It leaps out at you. What I was going to say, uh, Bruce Gary, uh, his uh, all-time uh, drumming hero um, uh, was Buddy Rich. 
and uh, he basically wanted to take the approach uh, that he wanted, uh, basically from Buddy Rich, a quote, I want to overplay with style. And, and he does it. He, he pretty much does. Um, everything, even though it sounds like he's all over the all over the shop, and yet if you listen to live recordings, everything is completely reproducible. He, it's it's not um, it's not like Keith Moon. And please don't take that the wrong way. Keith Moon is my was my hero, uh, absolute drumming hero growing up. But there was you know, probably a, a lot that Keith Moon wouldn't necessarily have reproduced because it was all spur of the moment sort of stuff whereas everything Bruce Gary did um, was really well thought out uh, and yet it sounded as wild as Keith Moon um, but yeah. yeah all fine musicians one of the greats and certainly as this band doesn't get their the respect that they're due certainly Bruce Gary the late Bruce Gary doesn't get the respect that he's due a remarkable drummer now Jeff, you of all people should know, what was the final clincher in them getting their recording contract? What made the record company sit up and say, oh, we'd better sign these guys? You've got me there, Mo. You'll have to tell us that story. Oh, you should know. I have watched that doco, but right. not for a couple of years now. Well, so you'll it, have to refresh my when, memory. When the, um, when the Knack were uh, playing along LA's Sunset Strip, uh, I think of the Whiskey or Go-Go, famous venue there, uh, they had many musicians in the industry coming to think, oh, we want to jam with these guys. And Tom Petty came and played with them. And uh, Southside Johnny, I think, might have come and played with them. But Bruce Springsteen came and played. Jeff, they should have rolled off yeah, the tongue. Yeah, and, I, and, and, and of course they did uh, record Don't Look Back, which I think was the plan was it was going to be on Get the Knack. Mm. Um, but didn't end up there, but did end up on a Springsteen tribute album. So it can be easily found now, The Knack doing Don't Look Back, great Springsteen song. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, so they, um, they, uh, they played, I think, one evening with Springsteen, and then two days later, they had something like 15... And suddenly the label wanted were, to sign oh, sign with yeah. us, sign with us, including the aforementioned Capitol Records, who eventually won them, who'd knocked them back four times before. <laughs> but uh, there you go. So uh, you, you, you knock down hard enough and, and you get the right people on the side. Who knows what you're capable of. And certainly with Capitol, whether it was the band <laughs> or whether it was the label, the whole... I guess Beatles comparisons and, and they really copped a lot of grief over you know wanting to be you know Beatles imitators and uh, how that impacted on the band and it was probably I don't know whether a band being a bit, little bit naive or whatever because it is an incredibly dumb thing to I guess even subconsciously liken yourself to the Beatles it'd be like a singer-songwriter coming out and saying himself I'm the new Dylan. Mm. It's not a smart thing to do. And Lord knows, no one's ever done that before. Well, <laughs> usually you get tagged with it, but it, you know, it was well, kind of whether it was the band making I, mistakes there. Know, they've copped a lot of heat unfairly. I, sus I suspect that a lot of that new Beatles thing might have come from influences outside the band. Certainly, Doug Figer had a very healthy ego, but um, uh, I mean, you listen musically to them, and really, I'm, I'm get the knack. I'd say apart from. Um, that's what the little girls do. I'd say there's nothing Beatlesque about the album. I'd say they had more in common, maybe with early Kinks, early Stones, uh, but it was 
uh, an early who than anything and they weren't sort of calling themselves the new who the new stones but um yeah they got so I think much really... just for a couple of photos more yeah. than the music like correct. you're saying correct which is ridiculous but uh, of course there was that enormous backlash the nuke the neck nuke the neck um look they it, it seemed like uh, back in the time and i do remember that everywhere you turned, you couldn't open a magazine, you couldn't turn on your television, couldn't open a newspaper without seeing a photo of the knack and, and uh, that front cover, that shit-eating grin of Doug Figer's. Uh, <clears throat> uh, so eventually the backlash was due to come, but there's been theories that either you know, overexposure uh, coupled with, I guess, journalists um, feeling somewhat miffed, somewhat put aside, because NAC management had gone and said to the band, don't do interviews, it creates a mystique, never do interviews. So at the time, they, I'm sure they did something, but not very much, and they probably put a lot of people offside. And I wonder whether your, uh, your biographical subject, Mr. Meldrum, might have been put onside, because when it came to album number two, but the little girls understand, which really, if Doug Fogger had had his way, Get the Knack would have been a double album, including those songs. Yeah, that was the plan, wasn't it? It that, was. Because all those songs existed. Capital didn't want to do that. Capital said, no, you're a, you're, it's a debut album, let's just keep it one album, we can come to those songs later. But Molly went and trashed album number two like it was, oh, it's just more of the same. But Well, he wasn't alone there, but I, I think part of the problem, the Knack did come to Australia. Mm. Uh, it was a pretty quick sort of tour. It was when uh, My Sharona was obviously massive. And I don't think they endeared themselves to a lot of people here. And, and I think that they were, it was that classic sort of case of they were, they were exploding at home and they're thinking, why are we so far from home? What are we doing here? We're just over it. We're tired, you know, all that sort of stuff. So I think, you know, they obviously met a number of people here, did a couple of gigs. And I don't think they were easy to work with. And mm-hmm. so I think, you know, inevitably there is that backlash. Like you were saying, the journalists are obviously annoyed. They don't get the interview. Those who do do the interview and, you know, they don't get on very well. You know, it's human nature, unfortunately, that um, the backlash will follow. And, uh, yeah, which was kind of disappointing. Very similar story in lots of ways to, say, Men at Work, particularly the Men at Work story in America in that the debut album, Massive, the second album for Men at Work, Cargo, and it was called Cargo because they had all those songs already. Mm. And it was kind of, and it was, you know, reviewed as kind of a pale imitation of the first record. You're just repeating the same old tricks and all that sort of stuff. And, and of course, um, that's I- exactly what you were saying that uh, with uh, The Knack, it was intended to be a double album. And also, the second album came along very, very quickly. It's remarkable to think Get the Knack came out in June 1979. The second album, But the Little Girls Understand, was February 1980. Mm. That's remarkable to think that, you know, the Knack, Get the Knack would have still been a huge album. Like what happened with Men at Work, Business as Usual was still in the top 10 Mm. when Cargo was released. Mm. So it's probably a victim of too much, too much too soon. Although back in the Beatles day, and here's another Beatles comparison, back in the Beatles day, it was not uncommon. They were releasing not only two albums of new material a year, but about four or five singles of non-album material 
Well, that's as well true. Over the and certainly Elton yeah. John was doing all that. A lot of artists were doing mm-hmm. that. But I think by the end of the 70s and then into the 80s with Men at Work, the music industry had changed and, and acts were tending to take much longer between albums. And I think it was, you know, Men at Work had a song called Overkill. It probably was Overkill. People were still, you know, dealing with Get the Knack and all that. And then suddenly a second album appeared. Yeah, but let's think about what some of those other albums that were coming out in the late 70s were. We were looking at albums by the likes of, you know, Fleetwood Mac, uh, which would take three months just to get a good snare drum sound. I mean, they'd, you know, they'd be the, spending the like Eagles, two months, two mu- the Eagles, you know, they're just think. spending all, spending uh, like a month just getting through their cork, their, their cocaine stash. You know? exactly. uh, I reckon though, and we can talk about this, maybe another podcast, 1979 is the greatest year in music. Well, and for me, like you were saying, uh, with, you know, acts like Fleetwood Mac and the Eagles were around. So obviously that West Coast sound. But for me, it was the collision of so many things. The new wave thing, the punk was happening. Obviously, great rock was still happening. Singer-songwriters. Everything was going on in 1979. And the Knack were at the forefront of that. Well, okay, it's interesting you mentioned that because I happen to have here the week, uh, the first week that uh, My Sharona became a number one single in the US. Here were the positions two through to five, the top five. They'll all be great songs. I I haven't seen the list, but I can guarantee it. Okay, good, right, I'm glad you think that. Uh, Number one, My Sharona, of course. Number two, Good Times by Chic. Yeah, well, of course the whole disco thing was happening. Number three, The Main Event by Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. Number four, After the Love Is Gone by Earth, Wind & Fire. Number five, Bad Girls by Donna Summer. So, all great songs, don't you? Uh, well, that's <laughs> oh, something, it was back. a wonderful thing that, you know, disco was happening. Uh, as I said, the new wave thing, punk, everything was going on in 1979. And remarkable songs, that top five list, not the best list I've ever seen. <laughs> um, but, in talking, but maybe it might explain some reason why get the knack but seemed like a, a, a breath of fresh air at the time I, I think that's true uh and the reason one of the reasons i talk about 1979 being the greatest year in music apart from what i just said with the collision of so many things going on was that uh speaking of molly meldrum back in the tv weekdays i worked with him there i went through every one of his columns from i think it was like 1975 to you know, 1990 or whatever it was and wrote down all the songs that he wrote about it was remarkable the list of songs from 1979 there was just more there was more of them mm. and there were just so you know if you're talking about say you know you could argue 20 great songs are released in a year or 30 great songs it was double that in Mm. 1979 do yourself a favor go and check out a list of albums and songs that were released in 1979 it will astonish you lots of one-hit wonders too but they were great hits all right well we've uh gas bagged for quite a while now about uh what the the um to get Mr. Tongue and Mr. Lips together. <laughs> We've talked for a while about uh, the precedents, what led up to Get the Knack uh, and everything uh, surrounding the album's release and the backlash and all that. So what of the album itself? Well, Jeff and I will speak about that after uh, this coming break. We'll see you back in a minute. He's just a common man. 
the American dream dust the road to be there. I'm coming to you live and in living color. Speak to you, the American people. A podcast called Silver and Gold Daddy. And you know that the American dream dust the roads, knows how to bring home the gold, Daddy. And just like Henry Silver. Sticking Barbara Boucher's head inside a sow hanging from the ceiling. Silver and gold will stick it to you. Stick it to your ears. Stick it to your mouth, your eyes, your nose, daddy. And all points in between, they'll take your listening pleasure and stick it between a sow's caucus hanging from the ceiling, daddy. Silver and gold. We talk about movies and sh. Find us on iTunes or silverandgold.com. And we're back. You're listening to Love That Album Podcast. Morris here, Jeff there. Uh, and we've been discussing uh, the great album from 1979 by uh, Get the Neck. Get the Neck. Uh, it of my Sharona fame. But we're here to uh, try and convince you that... Um, uh, this album is an album of 12 great songs, not one great song. Uh, My Sharona, make no mistake, it's a classic single, fantastic single, but every other song on that album is an absolute perler. And uh, let's, let's start out with Albert, uh, side one, track one, which incidentally was the B-side for My Sharona. How good is this album where a song like Let Me Out is a B-side. Yeah, obviously I'd heard My Sharona when I bought the album, very first album I ever bought, Get the Knack, and I was sold from Let Me Out. What a great opener. It just grabs you with that urgency and that pop intensity. It's just, and it sticks sticks in your head, just that one line, Let Me Out. Um, you, You might not have heard it in years, but you can remember just that incredible hook. I guess maybe there's, there was the other Beatles comparison because like the Beatles debut album Please Please Me with I Saw Her Standing There opens up with Paul McCartney counting in one, two, three, four and, and Doug Figer does the same thing there so maybe they weren't doing themselves any favours but, but it, is a, it is a great opening. Wonderful. And then uh, you know it goes into your number or your name, great song bit of a change of pace with Otara but what, you know, that's a pop hit if ever I've heard one. This great, great opener to the album. I thought, um, talking about, so yeah, coming back to Let Me Out, uh, it's it's a song that really requires a lot of muscular strength. Uh, I listened to that, like, it's, it's just two and a half minutes, and it's got more energy, uh, more spirit than 10,000 songs. It's uh, I imagine if you know the, any any uh, lesser strong band were to get on stage, play that song, they'd be all knackered out, pun intended, after that two and a half minutes, and think, right, we've done a whole night worth of energy in that one song. You'd be yeah. sweating, and you've sweating got a bullet. eleven more great songs to go. You do, you do, and, and uh, we we're talking before about the uh, incredible virtuos- virtuosity of uh, Bruce Gary, and uh, really, I think more than just about any other song on that album. Um, that's really him doing his uh, Buddy Rich Keith Moon impersonation on there and the thing was like just as I said before listening 
to uh, live recordings. It was completely reproducible. Every note, it might sound like it's wild and all over the place, but he knew exactly what he was doing. Was yeah, fantastic. an incredible opening cut, a, a statement of intent. Mm, certainly is. Um, your number or your name, the next song, uh, sounds, yeah, I guess this is a Beatlesque track. Uh, and uh, that's definitely a positive thing, despite all the, you know, that, it's one thing to, to be dubbed the new Beatles, but certainly it is still okay to, to uh, do Beatlesque uh, material. And there have been plenty of bands which, which uh, have gone and taken on a Beatlesque style of harmony or, or, or chord structure, and it's always been seen as a good thing, so, but all of a sudden the neck are being made to pay for it. Um, uh, and then, yeah, track number three, as you mentioned, Otara, which uh, I think Doug Figer said was about um, a roadie for a previous band. It might have been Sky or... I wish I could remember the name of the band he was in after Sky, but it might have been a roadie who he had the hots for. So uh, there you go. Because as you've written about, so much of this album is, you know, it's about lust and longing and adolescent lust. Mm. And, and it really, this, yeah, which so much great rock and roll is... But it, they copped a lot of grief too for supposedly being sexist, mm, and, and it was such a negative thing. But it, as you point out, so many songs are about this subject, and they don't cop the heat. Well, no one ever, no one ever claimed that uh, Satisfaction was a bad song because it was about sex. And the thing was, Doug Figer at least had the honesty, the, the state of mind, to be upfront. I'm not going to couch this in double entendres. I'm going to say, I want you. Let's do it now and, and I, I heard another great um, uh, another great statement made on the uh, Rock and Roll Geek podcast and they put forward the uh, the case that uh, in fact Get the Knack is a concept album and the main concept behind the story is blue balls you know <laughs> this is not a this is not an album about sex it's an album about not getting sex <laughs> wanting you know, it not getting it Figer was a horny teenager um, and he wasn't getting all horny young 20 something and then he met Sharona and Sharona was well look you know I'm in love with my boyfriend and and you know and you're with your girlfriend what are you, what are you doing writing me this song and just imagine the look on her boyfriend's face when Doug Figer was on stage singing my Sharona with his band and she's in the arms of her boyfriend and Doug oh. Figer's on stage saying also imagine what Doug Figer's girlfriend would have thought of the song because as you said he wasn't hiding it he no. could have couched it in other terms no. he could have made up a name but there was an incredible honesty to this record well the other side of that is track 4 on the album uh, which also features another great Bruce Gary drum beat um, sort of a, a slowed down Bo Diddley beat uh, the song is called She's So Selfish and you think oh I wonder who he's writing this about but in the documentary Getting the Neck Feige fesses up it's about Sharona uh, so he was in lust with a purely in love and, and angry lust, that she wasn't into him but she time. wasn't she wasn't giving him any so he writes this song She's So Selfish and apparently there's a clean version of that doing the round so if you can find out that's the rarity the album has uh, you know it, it was the language of the time. He, he was told, I think, in the uh, in the middle eight bit, there was uh, there was a lyric, um, "No fucking me, fucking me today." But um, you know, and, and there were people saying, "Oh, you can't do that. You can't say that." But Doug thought, you know, why? Teenagers say that. That's what we say. That's what we do. Uh, and he was just expressing his anguish. But uh, and yes, I guess he did come up for a lot of uh, 
a lot of flack about it being sexist, but um, you know, once again, a lot of a lot of uh, sexist songs that just sort of were maybe a little bit more clever in hiding it in double entendre. But uh, Figer made the cardinal sin of uh, being open and honest about it. So um, there you go. But she's so selfish, killer drum beat, um, and yeah, a, a racy lyric. Not. Um, yeah, well, yeah, well, we'll, we'll leave with that. Yeah, very racy lyric, and, uh, uh, and once again, full of energy, as uh, every other song to that point does. Because it has that wonderful nervous energy. The album, it's, it's edgy. It does. It does. Yeah. Well, well, well. Actually, remind me of that edge when we get to my Sharona. There's a there's a point to make about that. Uh, next song on the album, uh, maybe tonight. This is the one point where the guys thought, right, we better slow down. We're uh, we're running out of energy. Here and they do a song called uh, Maybe Tonight, which, uh, if you're not careful, you might be fooled into thinking that it's a love song, but really, another lust song. Uh, you know, even lyrics like, funny to think I have to clown and pretend you never knew I saw you as more than a friend. You know, the melody tells you it's a love song, but Figer tells you otherwise. <laughs> you know, come on, I really want it. <laughs> a, night, a, lovely, a lovely moment. And I, 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 was, um, I remember listening years ago to. Um, the 3XY, there's a Melbourne radio station that was big back in the day, folks. Um, they broadcast live the Knack playing in Melbourne. At Bombay Rock. At Bombay Rock. The venue at the town at the time. And I remember being disappointed that they uh, didn't do that song. They did, I think, maybe apart from that and Siamese Twins, they did every other song. Oh, and but uh, that's what the little girls do. But they did everything else from the album. I was, I was disappointed because that was sort of a bit of a favourite of mine, that quieter ballad but there you go never mind we got the album and uh yeah another a quiet song about lust if uh, if that's possible and then we end up with the last track of side one which is good girls don't have we said enough about good girls we don't probably have. i just want to say. quickly point out the harmonica solo in that song what yeah what a surprise that is when you first hear the song but how well does it work within it, that song? It is fantastic. Yeah, you, uh, you think, oh, so uh, Feige was going into a Bob Dylan <laughs> phase. You should have been singing, oh, good girls, don't, but I do. It, it <laughs> could have worked, could have worked. But uh, yeah, uh, it's uh, just a little bit of a little bit of flavor there, a little bit of uh, Yeah, wonderful. And as I said before, just an incredible line, good girls don't, but I do. Mm. That's genius. Then we, uh, back, uh, back in the day, when we had flip vinyl, we'd flip over the record, side two, track one, the track of the moment, the one that even the grandmas knew, my Sharona, and we mentioned Edge, uh, Figer mentioned he wanted something that uh, was Who-like, uh, and he, he blatantly admits he ripped off my generation, he wanted that, that, with that with that stutter thing. Uh, I'm not sure whether he fell into any uh, trouble about um, the song being anti-stutterist. I know that uh, uh, Townsend came came in for some uh, flack at the time, but uh, maybe Figer did as well. I don't know. I might have to go back and uh, watch Getting well, the Knack. They were copying heat for everything, so I'm sure they did. But what I loved, uh, you know, many things about my Sharona, but growing up in country Victoria, we all knew a Sharon. Sharon is such a great Aussie name. Mm. You know, Sharons are everywhere. 
Sharona though, none of us had ever met a Sharona. We still haven't. The whole Sharona thing, just adding that A to the name Sharon. It's actually, it it's actually Sharona. It's an Israeli name. Okay, it was it was exotic. Mm. It was exotic. Australians had never heard that name and mm. that was exciting. Mm. So already this music before we heard it, was taking us into another world. And then the music totally did as well. Mm, mm. Incredibly exciting, this song. Burton Nevers guitar solo. Uh, as I mentioned before, the Rock and Roll Geek podcast. They would, they would give me some uh, some promotion. I'm mentioning them a lot. Uh, but uh, I, I think they were, while he the, the host of the show was interviewing Burton Nevers, and he played bits and pieces of the track, and when he got to that guitar solo, he, I think he was like in some sort of uh, uh, lustful ecstasy. So, oh man, I gotta play that again. That's the best guitar solo I ever heard. And, um, but it really is something to behold. Yeah, the drums, the guitars, like there are just the there are riffs, there are just hooks all through this song, the vocal stuttering, the stop start sort of feel to well, it all. When, but when you think about it, most songs have one riff, one killer riff. This has two. Yeah. Only one's being played on the guitar and one's being played on the drums. The moment you hear that drum beat, you can't start it off any other way. That's that drum riff. Yeah. You hear it and you know what's coming up. And then boom, 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 boom. It's just it's, fantastic. It's If you had to play one perfect pop rock song to someone, pick My Sharona. We're going to put it into a, into a uh, pod send it out into space Jeff I reckon oh we should do it NASA should have already done this it's got everything and the pleading and the desperation in the lyric the the lust in the lyric it's phenomenal Mm. you can't you cannot fault this song Mm. and then we come to uh, the album's uh, soul cover I know that uh, Figer had a healthy respect for um, rock and roll history I guess though he was a guy who uh, had his own songs he had to prove but uh, they still had a healthy respect for rock and roll history, and so they launch into uh, a knackified uh, version of Buddy Holly's great song, Heartbeat. Now, the original Buddy Holly version is uh, sort of done in a, a very gentle, very Latin-y sort of way. Uh, you can imagine sitting by the pool with a margarita in one hand and, and, and uh, just sitting there enjoying the sunshine, but this is... Another song of lust, heartbeat, why do you skip when my baby kisses me? This is, once again, he's turned a love song into a lust song. Really inspired cover. Mm. Uh, the next song on the album, now, this is this is one I, for a long time, this is probably, well, even this, it, it, it does have a lust connection, though I never really knew about it. Um, Burton Nevere told the story that, in fact, he was a big fan of an American author called John Barth, B-A-R-T-H. And he'd written uh, a book of short stories, I think called Stories from the Fun House. It's definitely got something from the Fun House is a title. And there was a story in it, I think called Petition. And it was told about uh, a fellow who um, had a Siamese twin. Uh, But this twin was on his back and no matter what this guy tried to do, if he was making love to a beautiful woman, this the, the, the little guy on his back was always breathing into his ear, no, I want her, I want her, I want her. And you know, uh, Burton Affair introduced this short story to Doug Figer, and he instantly became a fan of John Barth's work. And then the two of them came up with this song, but from the perspective of the bigger twin, the guy you know who <laughs> sings and he's on my back. He's he's driving me crazy. Kill him, 
throw him out on the road somewhere. I'm trying to make it with this girl over here and he's, he's just on my back. Um, Which again, that sort of fun and playful nature of that song comes through in the music. Mm, it just, does. It's just a really fun beat to that song. It does. Uh, three songs left. Oh my god! And then we have to go back to side one again. I'm <laughs> yeah. having so much fun. Uh, Lucinda. Now I'm not. I haven't seen anything in the docos that says who Lucinda actually was. I'm, no, maybe I... it's a, a nom de plume for Sharona again. But uh, I guess this is uh, a, a song that's a slower song, slower ballady song. But it's uh, the, the mood is sort of more in the uh, in the vein of she's so selfish. You know, Lucinda will bring you down. Lucinda's going to make you cry. Uh, once again, poor Douglas Figer is complaining about not getting any, and Lucinda ain't going to give it to him. He's, he's, he's not having much luck with the ladies. No, is uh, uh, old Douglas Figer, but he brought it upon himself. And again, being a little Aussie bogan at the time, you know, I knew a Sharon, but I didn't know any Sharonas. I, you knew a lot of Lucys, but Lucinda was an exotic name too. And now you're a big fan of a Lucinda, aren't you? Y- exactly, Lucinda Williams. Yes, indeed. So. This um, get the knack opened my eyes in so many ways. Mm. Uh, that's what the little girls do. Yeah, the pop hooks in this song, incredible. Yeah, this is this is a Beatlesque song. Uh, the harmonies are there. Ooh la la la. There's yeah, all over the place. Um, I guess not too much. This is I guess more of a filler song. But uh, you know, the knack doing filler was you know other people's. Uh, uh, number one pop hit, but yeah, this is a pop hit. Less on the aggression. Um, once again, you know, Douglas Figer thinking that he's uh, he's being hard done by, uh, uh, but um, certainly uh, you know, it, it, it's got it's got a beautiful pop melody and those great pop harmonies that still make it uh, worthy of your attention. But uh, this is all a distraction from the final song on the album frustrated because if as you said it is a concept album about not getting any Blue this balls. one this you know is the the full stop on that it's just hey it hasn't worked out frustrated mm. he's just not getting any satisfaction i wonder if uh, i wonder if Mika heard this album i wonder if he wanted to sue fire because he stole all my <laughs> songwriting ideas <laughs> um i guess look the the, the I don't know, I'm going to say the final point, but I'll probably think of something else I want to say about this. But it seems incredible to me that Get the Knack has been so derided over the years. I'm not saying by everyone, because I know that there are people out there doing my searching over the net. There are other people who do feel like we do. And certainly there are other musicians who feel like we do. Um, uh, But, you know, the general thing, I mean, I've, I've been to... I've been to other people's places, I've been to parties, I'm talking about music, I'll say, I'll have get the knack and they'll say, oh, well, we'll be praying for your soul or something like that. Like, yeah, or they think it's one song. They think it's the one song. Uh, and yet, I mean, really, uh, Nirvana, never mind, smells like teen spirit, big hit. Was there another really big hit? I mean, really big hit. Well, and yeah, and certainly that album is not seen as a one-hit wonder album. No, it's, it's seen not. as a great album, which this one should be too. And this, it's one of the greatest debut albums ever. Mm. It's mm. one of the greatest rock records ever, for sure. Um, but certainly a remarkable, you know, to think that this is a debut album. It's just phenomenal. So after Get the Knack, they went on to make uh, the aforementioned But the Little Girls Understand, which was really, I guess, Get the Knack Part Two. But that was what. Uh, Doug Figer had intended 
but yeah, some great songs, some great songs on that. Baby Talks Dirty, which was the lead-off single from that album, I guess that might have come in for some flack because that really that had a riff that was too much like My Sharona. I guess that could be guilty of, and if My Sharona hadn't existed maybe Baby Talks Dirty might have been a lot bigger than what it was. Yeah, it was probably a, a dumb first single in mm. hindsight because it left themselves wide open for the critics mm. just to jump in and go, oh, they're just, you know, repeating their old tricks. Mm. It's a rewrite, you know. And then and they were saying the entire album was a rewrite of the first album. But as we pointed out, it was originally intended to be part of mm. that first album. Doug wanted it to be a double album. But went, yeah, probably an unfairly overlooked second mm. record because I don't think the, the critics even wanted to listen to that record. They were just out mm. to bag the knack. Now, I think I've seen on the on the Amazon in uh, recent weeks that uh, later on this week, um, well, of course, depending when you're listening to this podcast, but uh, as of late October, there's going to be a new remaster uh, of uh, Get the Knack. Unfortunately, not with the uh, bonus tracks that came out on the last remaster. But uh, if you don't already have this album, uh, and hopefully we've convinced you by now that you ought to uh, search it out, go to YouTube, you'll see the My Sharona film clip, but people have gone and put up all the songs in one form or another. And of uh, course it on is... YouTube, if you need convincing, if we haven't already done it. It is very sad too. Uh, Doug Figer died uh, in 2010. We'd already said goodbye to Bruce Gary in 2006. Mm. In Australia, we were very lucky to get to see Doug Figer. I think it was 28 years after the Knack were here, he came and did the Countdown Spectacular Tour. And of course, only got to do a couple of songs, but it was wonderful to see him uh, live on that tour. And yeah, my final words, if this album hadn't sold six million copies, it would be revered. It is a victim of its own success. Yes. It is a wonderful record. Whether it sold Squillions or sold nothing, it is just a great record. Another one, if you want to follow this up uh, with another Knack record, if you sort of come to your senses and realise that Knack really is uh, worthy of the majesty that we're presenting it with, uh, I think their last album, or maybe second last album that they put out in the early 2000s, uh, was an album called Zoom. Uh, they, they had a reformation. They'd split up uh, of course, I think in uh, New Year's Eve, uh, 81 going on to 82, uh, got back together a few years later with the original lineup. But uh, Bruce Gary and Doug Figer uh, were very, they didn't like each other, I think to put it mildly. Guitar player and drummer uh, hating each other's guts. And uh, we'll talk about that uh, on another band in a future podcast. But um, it's a common thing, it seems. But uh, they, so they went on with a succession of other drummers, I guess, just like Spinal Tap. And uh, one of those drummers was uh, Terry Bozio, um, uh, another respected session drummer. Uh, and they put out another really great pop album called uh, Zoom. So if you can uh, track that one down, I think it might even be on Rhino Records. It's uh, well worth your while. But if you don't do anything else, don't get Zoom, just get the knack. Um, exactly. It's not a one-hit wonder album. It's a 12-hit wonder. Exactly. Well, there you go. We've gone and gaffled on about uh, the knack for oh, quite a fair bit of time now. So I uh, hope you've enjoyed it. Hope you've enjoyed this podcast. And uh, we'll um, listen to the couple of back episodes and uh, maybe uh, uh, stay tuned for, in a couple of weeks for uh, the next episode. Um, and uh, Jeff, any projects, anything that uh, you want to promote, anything that's uh, happening? What's happening with you in the next few weeks? Um, no, but uh, website, 
any, any of you who happen to be in Melbourne should uh, pick up a copy of uh, Impress, the uh, weekly street oh, yes. magazine, that uh, music magazine that uh, Jeff writes an excellent column for called How's That? An Australian music column. Yes, all, all Australian music. Jeff is a great champion of uh, not just Australian music, but underrepresented uh, Australian music. So um, I urge you to uh, go search that out. And, uh, of course, when he gets any other projects up, uh, love that album will be, if not the first, will be one of the first to make you aware of what's going on. I'll have to do something. Good. I've got something to talk about. Oh, hurrah. (laughs) But let's do another podcast soon. We will. We will. Absolutely. Uh, Any of you out there who want to get in touch with me, you can uh, send me an email uh, at rrrkitchen. That's all one word. rrrkitchen at yahoo.com. Com.au. You can find the podcast uh, either by going to my blog site, love that album, that's all one word, love that album.blogspot.com, uh, where I have a, also a series of articles that I write about uh, my favourite albums, although I've been a bit negligent about that in recent weeks. Uh, or if you go to your iTunes search engine, type in all one word, love that album. And uh, you can get it that way. Uh, spread the word uh, amongst your music-loving friends. Uh, I'd like to get as many people listening to this as possible for the obvious reasons. Uh, but uh, really, if you have any thoughts about uh, this podcast, if you have anything you want to let me know, even if you even if you write in and say, "Look, I think Get the Knack is a shit album," I'll severely disagree with you, but I'll be very interested in hearing why you think so. Uh, so anyway, until uh, the next podcast. Uh, This is Morris and Jeff signing off, and uh, I hope uh, I'll be able to uh, convince you to come on the show again real soon. Love to, Mo. Excellent. Thanks very much. Cheers, guys. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.